0: never gets old to talk about our Savior, does it? There's always more to see when we look to Christ. And we have the privilege to do that again this morning in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 9. Specifically today, we'll be looking at Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. It's no secret that mankind has had a universal sense of, of our unworthiness to come to God since the fall in Genesis chapter three. Although it's become popular in recent years in Western culture, especially to deny any sense or feeling of accountability to God or to deny that we have any guilt before God, the scriptures are clear that that is just a a smokescreen. In Romans chapter one, verses 18 and 19, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. But while many in Western cultures in particular uh, try to suppress the truth of, of God by denial, much of the world still follows the more traditional approach of suppression, which is to try to attempt to earn personal merit through outward religious activity attempts at self-righteousness, really are at the heart of every false religion. But this morning, for a moment, I want you to see especially how this is highlighted in the false religion of Buddhism. Buddhists believe that they can earn merit with God every time they recite a religious prayer or mantra. And in addition to that, they've created something called a prayer wheel. And in their mind, it's an ingenious way of earning more merit, exponential merit with God because They take a a tiny piece of paper and write in small script different prayers and mantras and then they put that script inside the prayer wheel and they believe that every time that prayer wheel turns they earn the same amount of merit as if they had recited all of those prayers or mantras on the inside of the prayer wheel. They have this special handheld version that you can buy online and, and, and spin all day long and earn merit uh, supposedly over and over again. But they even have massive prayer wheels in certain parts of the world that they've built that, that tower multi stories that you can go and use your full body to push with with maybe over a million prayers or mantras on the inside. And people make pilgrimages across the world to go to these prayer wheels, to push that prayer wheel, hoping that that will give them exponential merit in the eyes of God. This is devastatingly sad to think on this constant pursuit of merit. They are a modern testimony to the fact that mankind universally knows that he is not worthy to come before God. And it testifies to the fact that man's first fallen instinct is to try to solve that riddle on his own, to do something to earn the merit that he needs. But there's another lesson in these prayer wheels because as much as Buddhism claims that you can earn this exponential merit by using these prayer wheels, still, day after day, they wake up and they keep turning them. And they do it because they know that no matter how much merit they earned the day before, it's not enough. I don't feel that it's enough. Just one more turn, just one more turn. And the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that there is a better way. There's a better way than all the religions of the world. There's a better way even than the old covenant as we saw last week, a covenant given to the people of Israel by God. But he says there's a better way to come to God than trying to earn our way there by our own personal outward religious works. God, the one true God of the universe, creator God, the God that made you and me and everything in the universe has given to us a means by which we can truly come to know him, a means by which our sins can be truly washed away, where we have all the merit, true exponential merit that we need, not by what we have done, but only by what his perfect son, the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ has accomplished. In our passage today, the author of Hebrews is gonna remind us just how special, just how unique our redemption is in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to marvel again at the wonder of true redemption in the person of Christ. You remember the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ, we're now in the middle of this longer section that will last until chapter 10 verse 18 and we're unpacking Jesus' superior covenant and sacrifice. We're unpacking the theme, Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. And with that in mind, last week we studied verses one to 10 through chapter nine and what we'll see today really flows directly out of that study. So let's begin by reading again the first 10 verses of chapter nine and then we'll turn our attention to our passage today. Hebrews nine verse one reads, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the uh, sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna, And Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now remember, I have told you last week that chapter nine breaks into five segments, we'll call them. We looked at the first two segments last week, verses one to five, segment one, the description of the earthly tabernacle, and then segment two, verses six to 10, the message of the earthly tabernacle. And if you remember, we looked at the fact that, that the, the tabernacle was given to Moses in the wilderness. It had two rooms, that first room, the holy place, the second room behind the veil, the holy of holies, the most holy place, and daily ministry took place under the old covenant in that first room. The priests were continually coming and going, but you remember only the high priest could enter into that second room behind the veil, and he once a year, not without carrying blood as a sacrifice for sins. This led to the message of the tabernacle. What's the point of all this? Well, he, he told us God had revealed to him that there is a better way to God, that as long as the outer tabernacle stands under the old covenant, it's a message of that the way to God is blocked by that outer tabernacle, and what we need is a better way through a better sacrifice. Now, I went ahead and gave you the answer last week, not that you hadn't figured it out already, that Christ is the better way. But this week, beginning of verse 11, the author makes his argument clearly that Christ indeed is that better way. And he expounds upon that and gives us the proof. So let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14, at Christ, this better way to God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more? will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May God bless the reading of his word as we come to the third segment here in Hebrews nine, the superiority of Christ's redemption. The superiority of Christ's redemption. The author's gonna follow a pattern here that he followed back in chapter eight where he makes a, a bold statement and then he gives us the proof of that statement. And so we'll follow that same structure. We're gonna look at the statement that he makes in verses 11 and 12 and then we'll look at the proof for that statement in verses 13 and 14. Here is the statement, the overarching truth statement in verses 11, 12. Christ secured eternal redemption. Christ secured eternal redemption. Look back at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Now this opening statement ties back into the opening of the chapter. Remember in verse 1 of chapter 9 he begins this this way. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. He's making a a comparison, a, a contrast here. So verse one begins, now even, verse 11 begins, but when. We're turning a corner now to look not at the old covenant, but the new in Christ. And he refers to this as the appearing of Christ, when Christ appeared, This is a reference in scripture of the fact that that God chose an eternity past when his son would come. At the appointed time, Christ appeared. He was manifest to us in the flesh. This is Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. When Christ appeared, when he was sent forth by God and from the beginning we see now he has been our high priest even in his earthly ministry bringing about this new covenant through his life, death, and resurrection. When Christ appeared as our high priest. But now he mentions a high priest of the good things to come. This is a reference to what he said earlier that this new covenant as prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. This, This new covenant is containing better blessings and better promises. He's a high priest of the better things to come, a high priest of the new covenant that was prophesied. The word but sets up this contrast. We've looked at the old covenant, now we're looking at the new covenant. The message of the old covenant as we've already stated declared that a better way was needed that with this word, but when Christ appeared, we're turning to what that better way is. It has to do with this appearance of Messiah. And there's three particular observations about his appearing, his ministry, that the author's gonna highlight for us now. Some of these are things we've already seen, but the, again, the author keeps coming back to similar themes from a little bit of a different angle to help us really grasp these things and their significance. Observation number one about his ministry as our high priest is that he entered a greater tabernacle. He entered a greater tabernacle. Now, look, if you look back at the passage in verse 11, about halfway through the verse, you'll see the words he entered. Those are probably in uh, italics in your Bible. If they're not, they should be because they're not actually in the original text. In the Greek text, the verb or he entered doesn't show up until verse 12. And so what I want you to do is try the best you can in your mind to pretend the words he entered are not there for right now in verse 11 because the author is is intentionally building tension. he's, He's giving these descriptions that build up to the announcement that he entered. So that we we're motivated, we're we're drawn out to focus on what Christ has done for us. He's layering these observations until he reaches the climactic point that he wants to make. So mentally try to put on pause the words he entered and instead skip over them as I did when I read the passage earlier and read it this way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered. That's the, the, the way the author originally wrote the passage. And again, we're using repetition here. We've already talked about the fact that Christ ministers in the better tabernacle. He ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. This was something that was taught to us back in chapter 8. Remember Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Now the main point in what has been said is this We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. And so here, what is it that makes this tabernacle so unique, so special? Well, he describes it as a tabernacle, the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. Now think of this always with last week's message in mind. What did we learn about that old tabernacle under the old covenant? It was was limited, it had great limitations because it was simply a shadow pointing to the coming true tabernacle. The high priest under the old covenant entered a man-made earthly tabernacle. But here, Christ secures redemption for us through this superior covenant by entering not into that limited earthly man-made tabernacle, but by entering into a tabernacle not made with hands. A tabernacle in the heavens, not made with human hands, gives the idea it must be made by who? God himself. This is the the real tabernacle, the one that was only symbolized by the tabernacle on earth. And so the simple first observation has to do with where Christ's redemption was offered. And it was offered in the better tabernacle, the true tabernacle in the heavens. But that leads to a second observation observation number two he entered by a greater sacrifice look back at the passage verse 12 and not through the blood of goats and calves not through the blood of goats and calves the blood of goats and calves ought to draw up for us the the imagery of the Day of Atonement from last week. Remember, we said specifically on that day, the priest offered the blood of a bull first for himself and for his family, then he came back out and he took the blood of a goat and he offered the blood of the goat for the people. That's what's highlighted here by this mention of the blood of goats and calves. Christ, on the other hand, not only ministers in a better location, But he ministers on the basis of a better sacrifice. The sacrifice here is is represented by the word blood. He entered not through the blood, that is, through the sacrificial offering of these animals, but instead, how did Christ enter? But through his own blood. But through his own blood the author reminds us that Christ did the unthinkable. And it's important for us Christians not to get too comfortable with this idea of Christ offering his own blood. I mean, many of you have been in Christ for decades and this has been the message you've heard since birth. And so, well, yeah, he offered his own blood. No, no, no. Christ offered his own blood for our redemption you understand how mind-boggling that is when we take into account the old covenant where they're bringing animals to, to offer the blood of animals and now God sends his son and he offers his own blood to pay for sin. Let us not fall into the temptation to sit back in our chairs and say, yes, I remember, I've heard this, I know this, I teach my children this every day. What's next? He offered his own blood, Christian, for you and your sin. That should wash over us anew every time we hear it jesus announced that this is exactly what he was going to do john chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 for this reason the father loves me because i laid down my life so that i may take it again no one has taken it away from me but i lay it down on my own initiative i have authority to lay it down and i have authority to take it up again this commandment i received from my father Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders before he was about to leave them for the last time, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies with trembling hands, carrying a bowl of animal blood our savior took his own blood as it were and offered it to the father. Therefore both the place of his ministry and the sacrifice of his ministry both far supersede that of the old covenant. And these observations now are building traction, they're building momentum to take us to the heart of what he wants to say to us in the third observation. Observation number three, he entered once for all, he entered once for all. Now we get to this verb, he entered, not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is an astonishing statement when we think about it, even on the surface, but it makes perfect sense in light of the last two observations. Again, we're to hear this in contrast to the study last week of the Old Covenant. The priest under the Old Covenant had to enter the Holy of Holies every year, and the rest of the sacrifices commanded under the Old Covenant happened every day. But because Christ offers his sacrifice in the true holy of holies, and because that sacrifice is not animal blood, but his own blood, he simply offers that in the true holy place once for all. Let those words wash over you, once for all. That is once for all time. And it also means once for all in that his blood paid the full price of sin for every one of his people. One sacrifice, full atonement. Once for all. What the shadow of the old covenant could never accomplish, Christ accomplished in one single sacrifice. The people of Israel gathered every year outside the tabernacle to watch the high priest enter into that holiest place in order to atone for their sins from the previous year. But spiritually speaking, every single one of God's people from the time of Adam to the end of time looks on spiritually at Christ on the cross as he enters once for all of us not for our sins that we committed for the year, not even for the sum total of our past sins, but for all our sins, past, present, and future, once for all. What we have witnessed in Christ is not atonement just for today or yesterday, but full atonement, complete atonement, Perfect atonement, or we might say eternal redemption. Once for all, having obtained for us eternal redemption. That word redemption is a key word that we have to understand. We need to think about. It's a powerful word. Alan Cairns describes redemption this way. He says, it has one meaning only, to release by the payment of a ransom to release by the payment of a ransom. Historically, this word was used to refer to the price paid for a slave's freedom. But when the word is used in scripture to refer to our salvation, it always refers to the payment that Christ made to the father to pay the debt of sin that we owed. The consequences of our sin, our debt was laid on him and he paid our ransom to the father. Titus 2.14 says, he or who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Mark 10.45, for even the son of man did not come to, to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many to pay for our sins, the debt of sin that we owed to God, Christ spilled his blood to pay that ransom for us. That's what it means when it says we have eternal redemption. He bought us back, he paid the price to pay for our debt. That debt of sin that we owed to God, that was, that was the debt that caused our conscience to scream to us that we are unworthy. The genesis of that sense of unworthiness comes from that sin debt that hung over our head that we could not pay. The Bible's clear that the, the committing of even a single sin is enough to bring this debt of unworthiness upon us. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. The law of God is like a chain, a long chain. And if you break one link in that chain, the law is broken. That's the idea. And so it is, the father sends his son to take on humanity that he might pay the ransom price to redeem his people from the debt of their sin. And this redemption is even more glorious when we consider the word that's used to describe our redemption. Notice he calls it an eternal redemption, having obtained eternal redemption. Therefore, the benefits of that atonement go beyond our imaginations. Under the old covenant, the Holy, the Holy of Holies was entered by the high priest once a year and then he promptly came back out, probably happily so, realizing that his 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 deed had been done for that year he didn't die and so he'll do it again next year but in Christ what we have is the offering of the sacrifice of himself only then to rise from the dead and enter into that holy place at the right hand of the father to stay forever think about that he was invited to minister there in the holy place. The the high priest could only minister just momentarily on that one day a year in that holy place. Christ now carries out his priestly ministry there for us until he returns in that place continually. And not only that, Christian, but he's making a way for you to go there, that you can be in that place. Think about that. This This is unfathomable to think about this eternal Redemption, is your heart stirred by these things? Does this overwhelm you to think on what Christ has purchased for you, an eternal redemption? It means that his sacrificial blood paid the debt for your sin, even the deepest, darkest sins, the one that you hope never come to light, the one that even now as a believer, every now and then, you're tempted to feel guilty about again as it comes to mind, I can't believe I did that. I know I was an unbeliever, but still, there's no excuse. How could I have done that to the Lord? Even that sin, Christian, washed away, made clean, renewed, eternally, never to be revisited again. This is what Christ has done for us. And so it is that he tells his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, John 14, three to four, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Listen to this, that where I am, and we know where he is, Where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. If you're in Christ, you will experience the overflow of gracious benefits that come from your redemption forever and ever and ever in the real presence of your savior. Think about that. Now that's a wonderful statement if you're in Christ, you already believe it. You don't need any proof, but the author's gonna give you proof anyway, as he always does. He's gonna take us to a, something from the old covenant to prove that this new thing that he's describing is, is not out of left field, but this is perfectly fitting and right. And so as he's made the statement that Christ secured our eternal redemption, now he's gonna prove it. And here's the proof. Christ's greater sacrifice must produce greater benefits. Christ's greater sacrifice must produce greater benefits. This is verses 13 and 14. And the proof here comes in the form of a conditional statement as it often does in Hebrews, an if then statement. It's also here an argument from the lesser to the greater. So what he's gonna say essentially is if this lesser thing is true, and it is, then this greater thing must also necessarily be true. And it is. It's really a simple argument, but the, the application and the implication of it is profound. So let's look at the if portion, the lesser that proves the greater. And here's the if portion of his conditional statement. If animal blood purified the body, That's the if portion and that's what he's gonna prove. If animal blood purified the body. And we see this here in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls, the blood of goats and bulls. This again is a reference to that day of atonement, specifically the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat was offered for the people. But in addition to that, not only that blood sacrifice on the day of atonement, but he mentions something else that he didn't mention last week that also was part of the cleansing under the old covenant. He mentions ashes in verse 13, for if the blood of, go- of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, the ashes of a heifer, what's this a reference to? This is a reference to a practice outlined in the book of Numbers, Numbers 19, and it was specifically a kind of ceremonial cleansing for a person who had become unclean by touching a dead body. That's what this was for. I'll just read it to you quickly from Numbers 19.9. It says, now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer. This is an effort that they sacrificed and burned and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it As water to remove impurity, it is purification from sin. Now, specifically, in a couple verses down in Numbers 19, he mentions that this is to be used uh, to cleanse, especially from ceremonial uncleanliness from touching a dead body. Numbers 19, 11 to 12. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from cleanliness with the water, that's the water from the ashes of the heifer, on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. What the author is doing here by mentioning the blood of the bull and the goat and the ashes of the heifer is essentially summarizing the ceremonial cleansing under the Old covenant. There were these ways in which a person could become ceremonially unclean and therefore kept from the congregation, kept from worship and kept from service. And some of the things that you could become, become unclean for were, were just part of the natural things that happen in life. And yet still, you were to be outside of the congregation for that time until you were ceremonially made clean. That's the idea here. He says the, this, this blood sacrifice and these ashes He says they were for the sprinkling of those who had been defiled and they sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Now, understand, we've we've said some negative things about the the old covenant. This is not meant to be negative. This is actually a positive argument. This is a true statement that he's making that's going to point to another true statement that's even greater. So this is the point he's making. He's saying, if the means that God gave under the old covenant were effective for ceremonial cleansing of the body. That's what he's saying. And they were. I mean, think about it. I was thinking about that this this morning, God actually allowed the high priest to come into the Holy of Holies just on the basis of animal blood. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? But God prescribed, this is the way it's gonna work and I'm gonna honor that and he did. And that's the point here. When people became unclean, they did the thing God said, and they got to come back into the congregation and worship and serve. So the author's saying, hey, if that was true, if that worked, then think about this. And here's the greater, the then portion of his argument. If that worked, if animal blood purified the body, then Christ's blood purifies the conscience, he says, if those things worked for ceremonial cleansing, then what Christ did for us in offering himself must do far more. It must provide true and full and total cleansing. And that's why he begins with, <coughs> excuse me, verse 14, how much more? If this worked with animal blood and ashes, how much more? This is an emphatic statement. We should hear the author's voice raising almost to the level of a shout with passion. If that was true, then how much more, just think of how infinitely greater the blood of the Messiah must be if the blood of animals provided purification for the body. And specifically, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ? I want you to notice he doesn't use the proper name Jesus. He could have, but he specifically uses Jesus's title of Christ or the Hebrew version of that would be Messiah. So read it that way, how much more will the blood of Messiah do this? This is not just any human's blood, this is the one promised long ago in Genesis 3.15, the redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the long promised son of David, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one that Isaiah said would be called mighty God and prince of peace. He says, this is Messiah. It was his blood poured out for you, Christian. How much more will his blood accomplish for you than the blood of animals? And then he goes on to explain some of the descriptions about how Christ offered his blood. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now there's so much packed in to that short statement. Let me read it again. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now think about those words for a moment. The words eternal spirit here There is some debate about the meaning, but I believe rightly the word spirit is capitalized because I believe it refers to the Holy Spirit. We know that Christ ministered during his earthly ministry at the direction of the Father. That's why he would always say, I've I've come to do the will of the Father. And he, he operated through the power of the Spirit doing the will of the Father. The Trinity then worked in conjunction together. And what we have here is a picture of the triune God working in concert for our redemption. The grandeur of this is hard to put into words, but let me try. Think about the old covenant for a second. You have a finite sinful man entering a man-made tabernacle offering animals for sacrificial cleansing. Now look at how he's described what Christ did. You have the triune eternal God ministering on our behalf the blood of Christ through the spirit to the father first you have the unblemished son look back at the passage Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish this is, this is the height the epitome of, of moral perfection of spotless holiness having lived a real human life without stain of sin that one offers his blood, but he offers it through the eternal spirit. That is, through the Holy Spirit, spiritually bringing that offering to the Father, enthroned in the heavenly tabernacle. So the entire trinity is involved in this perfect sacrifice, resulting in our eternal redemption. And so it makes sense that he says, how much more will the blood of Christ do for us how much more will the sacrifice of the perfect son of God offered through the Holy Spirit of God to God the Father accomplish in comparison to the ceremonial sacrifices of the old covenant well he'll tell us how much more in clear language here's how much more how much more will it cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God here it is The old covenant ceremonial practices cleanse the outer man. They cleanse the outside of the cup so that that man could then come and serve and worship. We saw last week, though, that all the while the conscience was left uncleansed. Remember Hebrews 9, 9 to 10? Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Those sacrifices were sufficient to make a personal ceremonially clean, but they they could not truly eternally deal with man's sin so that the conscience remained unaffected. But the superior sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has done under the new covenant what the the old could never hope to do. Because here he says his sacrifice actually cleanses you internally. Not just the outer man, but the inner man. This is what is meant by being a new creation. He does what needed to be done, the internal heart work of giving you a new heart a living heart, bringing you to spiritual life when you were before dead in your sins. And that new spiritual life comes with a conscience that is truly cleansed, not because we are sinless, but because our sins have been paid for by the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The guilt and the punishment for our sin has been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and the righteous merit that he earned with His perfect life has been laid on us by grace through faith. This is second Corinthians 5:21. "He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." This radical salvation and transformation produces in us now a new ability to worship and to serve God freely, unbound by the dead works of the law that previously only heaped more condemnation on the conscience. Let's analyze this final section of of the last statement here. He says, this was to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the play on words, dead works, living God, that's, un, that's intentional. The new covenant is not characterized by works that we must do to continually make ourselves worthy to come to worship God and to serve God and to be in right relationship with him. Understand that even under the old covenant, salvation was by grace through faith alone, but people could become ceremonially unclean and not be able to come before God to worship. There was that constant reminder that you in and of yourself are not worthy to come before me. But think about it. We don't have to become ceremonially clean to come to worship today. I didn't have to become ceremonially clean to stand and preach or uh, the band didn't have to do some special thing with ashes in order to lead in worship. Why is that? Because Christ has done it all. What Christ has done in cleansing the conscience, this is important to understand as well, it's as if he has said to us, you are from now on, Christian, eternally welcome before God. You're welcome here. Now that doesn't mean, when he says that that he cleanses our conscience, it doesn't mean that your conscience won't ever convict you for sin. What we're talking about is your conscience convicting you that you have no place with God. You're not saved, to put it clearly. The Christian doesn't have to worry about his or her justification anymore. Never to re-enter the courtroom of God, to, to redo the case, so to speak, because I messed up today. Instead, he says, I'm going I'm to eternally wash that away. I'm going to justify you based on the blood of Christ. And yes, you're going to go through a process of sanctification in which you still sin. And when you sin, I'll convict you for that sin. But that's a conviction to draw you back into fellowship with God, which is available to you always because Christ purchased it and justified you and made you new. So no longer are we bound to these dead works constantly having to make ourselves clean in the eyes of God to come before him to worship or to come before him to serve. But notice something here that's also important not to miss because he says he cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, it's important because when we, when we read that he's cleansed us from dead works, that might lead us for a moment to think that now there's nothing for me to do. I'm, I'm made clean, I'm made new, and now I can take my ease and I can just live a happy life for myself. But understand, this is not a call to, to lawlessness, certainly, and it's not a call to inactivity, To be redeemed under the new covenant means that you've been justified and made new and now have the freedom and the joy to serve the living God. This is Ephesians 2.10, which after explaining that we're saved by grace through faith, not by our works, he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which he prepared beforehand that we'd walk in them. This is, this is the call of the Christian. It is not a call to lawlessness. It's not Romans 6, you know, because we're under grace, what, should I just sin all the more? Paul says, may it never be. Because I'm in Christ, do I not really need to worry about arranging my life according to the scriptures? You know, was that just part of the old covenant? Absolutely not. What has changed is you're now justified and and that, that conviction that you're not worthy before God is removed so that you can now do those things freely with a whole heart not to earn anything from God. And so it brings up the question for us as Christians, ask yourself how faithfully Are you personally serving God and worshiping God as a pattern of your life? How much of your life is arranged around this idea of serving the living God? He cleansed your conscience so that you could do this. What are you doing with the gift of new life that he's given to you, Christian? Have you viewed your salvation selfishly as an opportunity to take your ease and kind of take it easy spiritually speaking because after all, grace, right? We're under grace so, so you know, just take your ease and don't worry too much about it. As if salvation and the grace of God is a means to a clear conscience that now lets me live for myself. No, it's a, it's a means to serve the living God but without the burden that my service is needed to make me right in his eyes. It's a service that's built on the acceptance that's already been given to me in Christ. He's given you a new heart, a new heart to love him, a new heart to worship him, a new heart to serve him, and a new heart to run with full vigor for his glory, for his namesake, until he brings you to be with him forever. Listen, this is what you were made for. Before you were a Christian, this is what you were made for. You understand that what every human being was made for was to glorify God and enjoy him forever but before Christ, you weren't even able to fulfill the purpose for which you were made, the purpose for what you were put here on the planet, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But if you think about it, by saving us and cleansing us at the level of the conscience, he now has freed you to finally do the thing that you were actually made to do, which is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's now available to you in Christ. But is that what your life is arranged around? Would the people who know you the best say that you live to serve the living God, that you live to glorify God and enjoy him forever? That means the entirety of your life, including your family, your career, your hobbies, and everything else is not a means to selfish gain and selfish pleasure, but an avenue to glorify God and enjoy him in and through those things everything in our lives comes back to this. You have been redeemed and made new. Now freely serve your God. This is the Christian life. So when you look at the current state of your life, Christian, what does it tell you about who you're truly serving? What does it tell you about who you're truly living for? Where do you find your greatest satisfaction in life? Is it it within the things of God and, and how the things in your life, even the temporal blessings that you have, point you back to the great God that you serve, who's been kind to you and gracious to you to give you those things? The goal of this passage is not only that we would be in awe of God, we should be that way because of this, but that our feet would be propelled to move, to run in service of the living God. But you know, maybe you're here this morning and you look at your life and you look at that call to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You look at the call to, to, to serve the living God. And the truth is, if you look at your life, it's just a spiritual flat line. There's, there's nothing there. there, that your life is arranged around you and what you can get and enjoying this life for your own selfish benefit. If that's you this morning and you look at your life and say, you know, there's, just, there's really not a spark of interest for the things of God, I may verbally say there is, but the truth is I just live for myself day in and day out. You need to understand that it's very likely you've never truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what happens, according to the author of Hebrews, is that when he cleanses you at the conscience level, he changes you, he gives you new life, new desires to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, desires that are placed there by God himself And so if you have no desire for the things of God, you have to ask yourself, have I truly come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask yourself, have you ever really humbled yourself, repented of your sins before God and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Not what you can do, but what Christ has done for you by living a perfect life, dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rising again from the grave. The Bible says, if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. This is the better way. It's the only way, but it's a good way. It's the best way. Turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and put your faith in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. All other hope truly is sinking sand. And that brings us as as believers, those of us who are in Christ to the appropriate conclusion this morning, really three things I wanna admonish us to, to do in light of the things we've studied this morning. Number one, meditate on the gift of a clean conscience. I want you to spend some time meditating on the the gift of a clean conscience. I've just scratched the surface this morning of the implications of the privilege to live with God with a clean conscience that I'm welcome based on what Christ has done for me. Take some time this week to think on that gift Think on the fact that as a Christian, we never have to again feel the sensation that we are unwelcome with the Father. And when we're tempted to feel that sensation, we have the truth of the gospel to speak back to that sensation to say, no, I'm welcome because Christ has purchased that for me. This is the gift of a clean conscience, washed white with the sacrificial blood of Christ. Secondly, serve on the basis of, of a clean conscience throw yourself into the pursuit of obedience and service in Christ's church overflowing with the joy that comes from the fact that you do that not to earn anything from God but based on the clean conscience he's given you in Christ give yourself to these things give yourself wholeheartedly without any sense that you have to do it to earn something you think about it under the old covenant, people were constantly becoming unclean by the normal activities of life and then being temporarily cut off from the, from the people of God and from the worship of God. You know, sometimes we come to church and we look around and see, you know, so-and-so's not here. Oh yeah, that's right, they're sick or they're out of town. Well, what would it be like if every Sunday we came, so-and-so, oh, they're probably unclean. They're unworthy to come today and so they have to do this ceremonial washing. Think about that. Instead, we don't ever have to think that way. That's that's very foreign to the way we think because we live under the new covenant. And so what that means is we ought to take full advantage of it and serve the living God. Use the gifts that God has given you to bless the people in this church, to build them up in Christ, and to bring glory to Christ. This is the way that God's designed his church to function. So if you're not using your gifts this morning, throw yourself into joyful service based on what the passage says. He's given you this clean conscience in Christ that you might serve the living God. And then finally, number three, worship as an overflow of a clean conscience. Would you say your life is characterized by the worship of God? unfortunately, we, we've kind of dumbed down the word worship in, in church circles to just singing. And singing is an important part of worship. It's actually commanded in the scriptures that Christians sing. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we ought to sing. And, and if you're in the habit, by the way, of coming and for the music standing and not singing, I would implore you to sing, not because I want you to sing, but because this is what Christians have been called to do. We teach one another as we worship God by singing truth. The worship of God is more than singing. Are you worshiping God in the pursuit of obedience with your life? Is the sum total of your life consumed with following after, serving the Lord? Are, are you worshiping God by, by, by studying the word and meditating on the word and applying the word? Are you, are you worshiping God by sharing the, the good news of the gospel with others? As we live an obedient life serving the living God, it's all an act of worship to the Lord. But my prayer is as we think on the privileges that are ours in Christ as those who have this eternal redemption, that it transforms the way we sing, that it transforms the way we read the word, that it transforms the way that we think about obeying the word and living that out. This is what it is to be a believer who has a clean conscience because of what Christ has done. We are those who ought to be known as servants of the living God. May it be true of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this privilege that we have to know the true God, the living God, to not only know him but to be loved by him and to love him and then to serve him. We fallen people, people who who shouldn't really even be allowed in his presence are not only allowed but called to serve, called to use the gifts that you have given to us for the benefit of your church. God, we thank you for these things, for the great gift that it is to be your people. Lord God, help us to walk In light of these truths that we have learned today, may they affect us beyond just the hearing of the words here. May they affect all of our lives. We ask you in the name of Christ, amen.